It's good to be here again. I hope you had an enjoyable entrance into the new year and that you're enjoying the sunshine today. I can only take so much sunshine. It makes me, it depresses me after more than a couple of days, (laughs) but I'm glad for a day of it. It's good to have my parents with me here today as well. And thank you, Father Mark, for the hospitality, Brent and Janice, for the ways that you, you welcome me and my family. Every sermon is impossible, but some sermons are more impossible than others. So today, against all odds, I want to speak the word of God to you in such a way that God happens. God happens among us, amidst us. Against all odds, I want this word to be the gospel to you and not nonsense. I want it to be gospel to you and not politics. I want it to be gospel to you and not law. I'm hoping we all leave this moment provoked, vexed, burdened, woke, but not browbeaten and not condemned. I want you to get it, and even more, I want it to get you. Because of the nature of my theme and the time I have, I'm going to work from a manuscript this morning. I rarely, I've only done this one other time in all my years here at Sanctuary, but I think it's important to say what I mean, and I want you to hear, hear what I'm saying as cleanly as I can say it. So before we dive in, can we say a quick prayer? God, thank you for the ways that you open up space and time for us. You invited us into your house today, and you've gathered us into your presence, and you're about to bring us to your table for the meal. God, I pray that you give me your words to say, and give us ears to hear what you are saying, and the courage to respond. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. I believe that this is the word for sanctuary today. God is calling, God has called you to the poor. Now you know why I said I don't want this to be politics. God is calling us to the, I'm not an undercover communist. I just have a word. Why didn't you laugh more than that? That's a little distressing. (laughs) I've been here almost a decade, people. You know I'm not an undercover communist. God is calling you and me, he's calling us to the poor because they are Christ's and Christ is theirs. We cannot have him without them. God is calling us to the poor because only the poor can know themselves and God. God is calling us to the poor because his nature is now our nature which means we can be ourselves only as we give ourselves away. We can be who we are only as we empty ourselves out in gift. Rowan Williams says this, the Christian life is about gratitude, a detachment from possessions grounded in the recognition that God's gifts are restless in the hands of the receiver until they are given again. God's gifts are restless. His nature is in us. We cannot not give. This is the word for us in today's psalm, which Janice, Pastor Janice read for us earlier. I want to return your attention to just, just a bit of it at the heart of the reading. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. And this can also be translated the poverty of the poor. 
He did not despise the affliction of the afflicted or the poverty of the poor. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. As you remember, Psalm 22 is the prayer of Christ from the cross. This psalm begins with the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with this blessing of promise. I want you to see how even while Christ himself falls into the experience of God forsakenness, he knows that God will never forsake the poor. In this same prayer, Christ says, my God, my God, you've forsaken me. God will never forsake the poor. In the very moment that he feels God cannot hear him, he confesses that God always hears the needy. And so Christ knows in this moment, as he knew in the garden, that he himself has to become poor because God only hears the cries of the poor and God always hears the cries of the poor. This cup will not pass from him. Concern for the poor, that is the needy and the afflicted, appears everywhere in the Psalms. God is revealed and lauded as God of the poor. Three themes dominate, and they show up in, in many, many, many Psalms. God hears the poor's cry for mercy. God rescues them from the wicked ones who prey on them, and God delivers them from their affliction into plenty. In a word, the Psalms bear witness to a God who never forsakes the poor to their poverty and never leaves the afflicted to their affliction. In Proverbs, however, the concern, the concern turns from God to the people of God, to you and to me. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. And whoever does this will be repaid in full. If you close your eyes and your ears to the cry of the poor, you will cry out and not be heard by God. If you do not hear their cries, he will not hear your cries. Proverbs 28, whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing, but one who turns a blind eye will get many a curse. Proverbs 29, the righteous know the rights of the poor. The wicked have no such understanding. All of this in Psalms and Proverbs will make more sense, better sense, if we remember Israel's Exodus story, the story that roots Israel's identity as the people of God. Enslaved in Egypt, they cry out to God, and he delivers them. This deliverance tells them once for all who they are and who God is. Who are they? They are the poor ones who cried out to God and were freed. Who is God? The one who heard their cries when they were poor and delivered them into plenty. Strangely, though, God delivered them from the absolute impoverishment of slavery in Egypt into the perilous scarcity of the wilderness. Never forget this about God. He delivers us, but always disappointingly so. The wilderness is so perilous. Deuteronomy 8 says this about the wilderness. It is great and terrible, an arid wasteland with poisonous snakes and scorpions. You see why Israel wanted to return to slavery rather than receive the deliverance God meant for them. Why does God lead them this way? Why does God lead us this way? 
because he knows they'll never know how to live with plenty if they forget how they were poor. And if they do not learn how to live with divine as opposed to human poverty. Before leading them into the promised land, he warns them to never forget who they had been and what they had undergone. But of course, like us, they did forget. So God sent the prophets again and again and again. Before the exile, during the exile, after the exile, God sent prophets to remind them of what they had forgotten. The prophets gave warnings because Israel had forgotten that they were poor, God would come and make them poor again. Think of Amos 5. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall never drink that wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, you who take a bribe, and you who push aside the needy in the gate. The prophets also made promises. Israel's deliverance would come just as they cared for those in need. Isaiah 58. This is the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Then your vindicator shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And all of that brings us to Jesus. The prophetic call to remember the poor is the heart of his ministry. Take, for example, the Gospel of Matthew, the first Gospel. In it, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is described as poor himself. Matthew says, has Jesus saying, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus proclaims that the poor are blessed. That the kingdom of God belongs exclusively to them. In the Gospel of Matthew, discipleship, he says, begins and ends with giving to those in need. Look at Matthew 6 with me. Verse 1. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So he identifies righteousness, piety, and then he gives us three acts of piety. First, whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do. Don't put it on Facebook. Do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and, sh and, after the door, and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now skip, if you will, to verse 19. The eye is the lamp of the body. 
So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For Jesus, discipleship begins and ends with giving. It's not all there is to discipleship, but it is the beginning and the end of discipleship. You cannot serve God and wealth. In Matthew's gospel, everything comes down to what we have done or left undone for the least of these. Everything. The last judgment in Matthew's gospel is nothing but what you did to me when I was sick, what you did to me when I was in prison, what you did to me when I was alone, or what you did not do when I was sick and in prison. Our poor ways of reading the gospel keep us from seeing how integral giving is to discipleship. But Maximus the Confessor sees something, 7th century Christian father, sees something that all of us should see. He makes the connection. You remember it's in Matthew's gospel that Jesus says, the poor you have with you always. And then in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, I will be with you always. Maximus says, when Jesus says the poor are with us always, he's promising us how he will be with us always. Because what you do to the least of these, you do to me. When Jesus says the poor you have with you always, he's not excusing us from responsibility. He's not saying to us, be realistic, nothing you do will really change anything. He's saying, if you want to find me, I will be with you always in the least of these. If you want me, seek me with them. We cannot have Christ without the poor. This is the way Maximus says, concludes this sermon. And if the poor man is God, it is because of God's condescension in becoming poor for us. All the more will we become like God as we heal the hurts of those who suffer. As we love others in imitation of God, the one who becomes like God has the same power of saving providence that God has. We are God's providence in the world. We are God's providence in the world. But I've not yet answered a critical question. Who are the poor? And this is why I wanted to be so careful to say what I'm about to say. Because the poor are politicized. And what has been politicized in our country right now is poison. And if I say something that you hear is politicized, you won't hear the word of the Lord. So what I'm saying to you is as far as I can make it, not political. It's gospel. The poor are the needy and the afflicted. The poor are those who lack the goods God means for them to have. And those who are treated as less than the sons and daughters of God they are. Whenever my family prays over a meal, we pray this. Lord, be with those who do not have food to eat tonight. I'm about to cry thinking about my children praying this. And those who have food, but no one to share it with. They are the poor. Widows and orphans. The widows you know. 
the orphans you do not know. They are the poor. The homeless and refugees, they are the poor. Physically and mentally disabled that we meet and pass in the goings of our life, they are the poor. The very young and the very old are poor. Addicts are poor. Abused wives and girlfriends are poor. Those who lack the imagination to care for their neighbor are poor. Those who cannot pray are poor. Those who cannot praise are poor. But without spiritualizing poverty away, we have to recognize that we are the poor as well. Every one of us in this room is poor in some way. Utterly impoverished in some part of our life. And each one of us in this room is called to the poor. But most of all, we are called to become poor for the sake of the rich and the poor alike. Let me show you another passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 8. One of the commitments of Paul's ministry as he traveled and preached the gospel was in every place to take an offering for the poor in Jerusalem and the church in Jerusalem. Wherever Paul went, wherever he founded churches, wherever he began missions, one of the, men, one of the things he did in every case was to take up an offering for the poor and send it back to Jerusalem. And that's what he's doing in 2 Corinthians 8. He writes to them and says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. The grace of God that's been granted to them. For during a severe, severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now don't miss the paradox. God's grace has come to the Macedonians in the midst of their severe ordeal. Sometimes grace doesn't change the ordeal. It comes to us in the midst of the ordeal. And it comes to them in their severe poverty. But because they were joyous in their poverty, what came from them was generosity. Generosity has nothing to do with your financial status. It has everything to do with the fruit of the Spirit in your life. If you are joyous, you will be generous. If the life of God is alive in you, those gifts will remain restless until you give them. Out of their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed a wealth of generosity on their part. For as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means, begging us. And Paul is playing with words here. They're impoverished, giving beyond their means, and they're begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this gift to the saints, what we're sending to Jerusalem. And this, not merely as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us, so that we might urge Titus that as he had already made a beginning, so he should also complete this generous undertaking among you. Now, Paul says to the Corinthians, and don't think Paul wasn't rhetorically slick, now as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you. So we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. In other words, match the funds the Macedonian church is giving. You excel in everything, excel in this. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love. That's a clever move. I'm not telling you you have to do this, but if you don't do it, it's because the love of God is not in you. 
I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. And then Paul drops this right into the midst of all of us. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Everything depends on that last line. By his poverty, we become rich. It is not Christ's wealth that enriches us. It's Christ's poverty that enriches us. He became poor that through his poverty, we might become rich. It is not his wealth. It is his poverty that enriches us. He came so that we might exchange our poverty, not for his wealth, but for our wealth and our poverty alike. To receive his poverty, which is the same as his wealth. As Paul puts it elsewhere, we must be filled up with Christ's self-emptying life. What will make you yourself? Forget yourself and give yourself away. How can you be happy? Concern yourself for the happiness of others. That's the heart of God. That's the life of God. Only in that way can we fulfill the call of Abraham to bring God's blessings to all people. If we do not become poor as Jesus is poor, then we remain masters offering a hand to others instead of servants offering ourselves to them. We're not called to philanthropy. We're called to love. The philanthropist gives... And in giving keeps the class status static. He remains in power and the poor remain unempowered. But the Christian gives themselves and everything they have so that power dynamics are turned upside down. These are those who have turned the world upside down. But to do that, we have to become poor as Christ is poor. But how is he poor? How is Christ poor? By becoming sin for us and by his agonizing death on the cross. We have to suffer that death. We have to die on that cross. We must be crucified with him daily. How? We must hold, this is Jesus' teaching, we must hold almsgiving, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting together as one, just as Jesus teaches us. We must in deep, deep prayer ask God to make us poor. We must let his poverty, his self-forgetting, self-giving nature indwell us. Then we must fast from ourselves so that we can give and be given to others. Without self-denial and self-forgetfulness, there can be no self-giving. We cannot care for the poor if we are consumed with caring for ourselves. And above all, we must befriend the poor because they are Christ. We can't have him without them. But what does it mean? And I'm almost done. What does it mean to befriend the poor? It's not merely about showing them kindness and respect. To befriend the poor is to make praise possible for them. Look again at the song. It is addressed to those who fear the Lord. Let those who fear the Lord praise him. And of those people, of those who fear the Lord and praise him, of those people that have said, from you comes my praise in the midst of the congregation. 
That is the essence of Christian friendship. We care for others in ways that move them into the joy of the Lord. We make it so that Christ can happen for them. We put a new song in their mouth. And that is what it means to be rich as he is rich. When we take his poverty and we give our lives away so that others can praise God. That is our joy. What brings me joy is simply seeing you overjoyed in the presence of the God who is joy. What fulfills me is seeing you enjoy the fulfillment God means for you. We put a new song in their mouth. That's what it means to be rich. To be so full of the life of God that you can wake in hope and joy and praise in others so that they can share in the fullness of life God means for them. And so I end with this. There, there's a kind of poverty that we should reject. A kind of poverty that strips our humanity away. That we should fight against. Not only in our own life, but in the lives of others. But to truly overcome that poverty. And to truly overcome the equal opposite danger of being people who have plenty and so are satisfied and lost. We have to become poor as he is poor. We have to let the poverty of Christ come alive in us. And that poverty is nothing but the kind of self-forgetting, self-giving love that always sees the need of others as more pressing than the needs we have for ourselves. If we do that, you know what will mark this place more than anything else? Praise. The philanthropist gives and the philanthropist is praised. The Christian gives and God is praised. And if the Christian gives and God is praised, then the Christian is happy. Because all we care is that God's name be raised to the place it belongs. That God be known as he is meant to be known. Because if God is known as he is meant to be known, then we are who we're called to be. This is the way.